Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Alejandro Ponce de Leon, from the University of California, Davis. We're joined by Dr. Micah Rader, writer, editor, and independent scholar based on Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Rader received her PhD in cultural anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in 2014. She's also adjunct professor at Louisiana State University and the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Today, we will be talking about her new book, An Ecology of Knowledges, Fear, Love, and Technoscience in Guatemalan Forest Conservation, published by Duke University Press in 2020. In An Ecology of Knowledges, Dr. Rader offers a rich ethnography of knowledge-making practices in Guatemala's Maya Biosphere Reserve, the largest natural reserve in Central America. Following the practical engagements between humans and non-humans, institutions and local actors, Dr. Rader examines how technoscience, endemic violence, and the embodied love of wild species and places shape Guatemala's conservation practices. The book also highlights how situated ways of knowing impact conservation practices and natural places, often in unexpected or unintended ways. In doing so, an ecology of knowledges offers new ways of thinking about the complexities of environmental knowledge and conservations in contexts of instability, inequality, and violence all around the world. Welcome, Dr. Micah Rader, to New Books in Environmental Studies. Thank you, Alejandro. I'm very happy to be here. I'm talking to you today. The book, An Ecology of Knowledges, takes us to the more-than-human landscapes that compose Guatemala's Maya's Biosphere Reserve. Maybe we can start by introducing our listeners to the reserve. Sure. Um, the reserve is actually a huge piece of land um, and, and really a patchwork of a number of different kinds of protected areas. Um, it's right at the northern part of Guatemala in a region called the Beten, uh, which until the mid-20th century was considered sort of very remote, backwards, jungle region of the country, um, until there was a, a frontier boom with sort of a people pushed out of the highlands of Guatemala by the Civil War and sort of pulled towards the land through a variety of government programs that encouraged frontier settlement and clearing the forest um, to make it more productive. Um, and that resulted in very large scale deforestation, very rapid deforestation of this region and led in the, um, late 1980s and 1990 to the, um, declaration of the Maya Biosphere Reserve, which covers the top half of the Peten region. And it, it covers almost one fifth of all of Guatemala's land. So really it's, it's a huge chunk of the country um, and right up along the borders with Mexico and Belize. 
It's made up of national parks, including some that are world famous, like Tikal National Park, which was the heart of the classic Maya empire um, and has lots of amazing temples and a vibrant tourist infrastructure. Uh, It's got community-run forest concessions um, where communities are granted some rights to do sustainable forestry and manage the land in a certain way. Um, And then it's also got more contested national parks with a lot of settlements inside those parks, some of which are um, really poor campesinos or... um, you know, peasants kind of just trying to eke out a living on the land, and then some of which are sort of fueled by these narco-trafficking and other um, criminal networks that are land-grabbing in the reserve and pushing deforestation in those parks. So it's this really complex, varied landscape, Um, and especially right up along the border with Mexico, it's led to it's um, a site for a lot of drug trafficking across that border, as well as increasingly a path for migrants to take um, moving from other parts of Guatemala, as well as from Honduras, through Guatemala towards Mexico and the United States. Um, And often those human migration tracks are controlled or um, shaped in many ways by the same criminal networks that are moving drugs through the landscape. So there's a lot of really complicated um, kinds of life on this landscape, as well as this rich, varied biological diversity, Um, some incredible wetlands and very, very rich endemic uh, biodiversity throughout the region. The book as such traces the relations, entanglements, practices, and ethics shaped and shaping forests in Central America. Maybe you could share with us some of your first memories as you encountered the Maya Biosphere Reserve? Sure. Um, I first went down to the reserve in 2007. I was a master's student working on um, my master's thesis. And I had a a pretty small sort of geographic scope within the reserve. I was really interested in this one Kekchi Maya migrant community inside Laguna del Tigre National Park, um, which is one of these more contested parks with a lot of settlements inside it. And this community is right next to a biological research station that at the time was run by the NGO um, Propeten. And so I was, you know, my thesis was thinking about the relationship between this biological research station, this NGO presence, and this neighboring migrant community that had um, a land tenure agreement, sort of semi-legalized presence inside the park. So while it's illegal to live in the park, a number of communities um, within this particular park have signed agreements with the state, allowing them to stay as long as they follow certain kinds of rules. You know, they've been given small tracts of land to practice agriculture, a small plot of community forest. Um, But it's a really pretty limited and limiting agreement in a certain way. 
Um, and so I was really curious at the time about how that NGO's scientific research and interventions in that community were working. Um, and that that project, you know, was was pretty small. And when I was starting to develop dissertation research in the following years and went back, the biological station had now been sold to a different NGO. Propetén had shifted focus, had shifted geographic focus, um, was going to work on other kinds of projects that were less conservation-oriented, more development-oriented. And in a certain way, that shifting landscape also really informed my research, um, thinking about how the institutional presences in this really complicated reserve um, shape how conservation works, how community engagement works, and the outcomes, and really paying attention to how that institutional landscape has shifted um, over time. So when I came back to really do my uh, dissertation research in detail, I was still really interested in these questions of scientific and technical knowledge production about what was happening on the landscape. How were conservationists figuring out what was happening, um, right? And how to direct their energies and how to intervene. And so I... Um, I ended up spending about a 14-month period of extensive fieldwork in the reserve in 2011 and 12, and have visited, you know, for one or two months at a time several times since then. Um, so I spent maybe a total of about 18 months scattered over the years in and around the reserve, um, and then. As, as I came back and sort of broadened my research scope from that smaller master's project to the scale of the, the reserve as a whole of this larger patchwork, um, I both, you know, expanded to look at other kinds of institutions, pay attention to that varied institutional landscape, but I also got to know a lot of different places in the reserve. You know, I spent a lot of time in Flores, which is the city where all the institutional offices are located outside of the reserve. But I visited quite a few communities inside the reserve with different kinds of land tenure rights and arrangements. Um, I got to visit sites in the deep forest, sort of following wildlife veterinarians and biologists as they were doing wildlife interventions. Um, I got to visit Mirador, which is a site in the farthest northeast part of the reserve that's the both the most well-protected in terms of forest cover and the most remote and has this incredible pre-classic um, ancient Maya city um, that's quite difficult to access and that is the site of its own kinds of controversies. And so I really... Um, came to know the res most of the reserve as a whole and, and got this larger sense of this patchwork and this complexity that I was describing before. Could you share with us maybe some of the first impressions that you had when you encountered the landscape as such? Yeah, the, the landscape, it's, it's overwhelming in its intensity. Um, and I think this is something 
This is something that I write about in a later chapter in the book about the the world the word wild um, and describing tropical forests and you know there's this troubling colonial legacy of describing tropical landscapes and tropical forests as this kind of other to the European imagination where it's overcome by nature in a certain way right this climate and this wildness but at the same time when you're on that landscape there really is there's such an abundance of life. Um, and it's so loud, you know, I think a lot of people imagine forests visually, but when you're actually in the forest, mm. you can't see very far, right? It's very, very dense vegetation. And really what you're sensing is mostly coming through smell and sound. Um, and, you know, there's howler monkeys, there's insects, there's birds, there's, hmm. uh, you know, even just the, the density of vegetation when the wind moves makes quite a lot of noise. Um, and so there's this real sort of sensorial um, shock of moving from a kind of very human urban landscape into these forested landscapes. And I write about how that that I describe it as nature shock as opposed to culture shock, um, where you're sort of immersed in unfamiliar surroundings and unfamiliar signs. Um, and, and I think that that sensorial experience is also really important to understanding um, how people get drawn into conservation. Because a lot of Guatemalans who work in conservation talk about how they sort of came to the jobs just because it was an available job. And then they start spending time in the forest and sort of get pulled into that affective atmosphere of the forest, um, get, you know, enamored by these wildlife encounters that are just so they're indescribable in words, right? It's a real embodied experience. Um, and I describe it using this word love this feeling that grows out of encounters with the forest. Um, and, and that certainly is something that happened to me. Um, I, I very much fell in love with this landscape and, and feel connected to it um, and recognized that same pull from that, the richness of that environment um, and, and the ways that it, it shapes one's bodily experience. Hmm. So during your fieldwork, you were following scientists and representatives of institutions, state agencies, NGOs. These are not the usual interlocutors that tend to appear in ethnographies on Central American forests. So what was their initial reaction to an anthropologist conducting fieldwork on their institutions and ways of knowing? Yeah, um, people were very curious about me. They were very open Um, and I think that there was this kind of mutual curiosity that worked in my favor. You know, I was very curious about them. And most people were sort of familiar with anthropologists vaguely, um, but thought of them as there's a ton of archaeology in the region, right? So people would go to, oh, you're studying the ancient Maya. Or, you know, oh, you're here to study the local people, right? Which is what most people think of as this sort of traditional going out to the village kind of anthropology. So I think 
the fact that I was asking to be in these institutional offices and spend time in a you know GIS computer lab, people were really, really curious about what I was doing. And that curiosity kind of led to an openness to talk about what they were doing. Um, it definitely led to moments of misreading of what I was doing there. Um, you know, people had their own understandings and ideas about what anthropology is. Um, and, you know, some people really thought I was there to evaluate what they were doing and, you know, to tell them whether they were doing a good or a bad job. Um, or, you know, we're more familiar with applied anthropology. Um, so sometimes I would be asked, you know, can you do these kinds of household surveys in the community to figure out X, Y, Z about our conservation um, programming, right? Which is not exactly what I was there to do. But in a certain way, those moments of misreading were also really productive because it gave me different kinds of opportunities to, to see what they were interested in, to clarify what I was interested in, um, and to... Um, yeah, to just learn more about their understanding of, of their own jobs and what they were doing. Um, spending time in institutional offices is, is a weird way to do field work. Um, the, you know, the first six months I was in the uh, Center <laughs> for Ecological Monitoring and Evaluation of the whole reserve, which is part of a state bureaucracy, part of basically the equivalent of the Park Service. Um, it's co-managed and co-run by the Wildlife Conservation Society, which was the, the other primary institution that I was located in for the second half of my fieldwork. Um, but in Semec, in this, um, uh, monitoring lab, right, it was, you know, I would go to work, I had nine to five work schedule. I would go in, I had my own little computer station and it was just this room filled with people quietly working at their computers all day. You know, so a lot of the time fieldwork was kind of boring um, and it was really hard to figure out, you know, how do I make this interesting? How do I ask people questions? Do I have to, you know, interrupt people in the middle of their work and, you know, go sit next to them at their computers? Um, and it was particularly strange. I write about this in the book, but most of the you know, Guatemalan social life, including in offices, is really chatty, right? People are constantly talking. Um, you know, they're talking about the news, they're talking about the weather, they're talking about their kids, they're talking about what they're working on. They're, you know, they're, there's just always a little bit of chat, right, going on. And this computer lab was silent. And even the people who worked there would all comment it on it in my interviews, you know, some either in usually in response to what's your favorite or least favorite thing about working in the office, be silence. But it was notable. Um, and eventually I realized that most of that office chat was happening. Everybody in the office had their Skype accounts open and they were physically typing their chat. Right. So people were sending each other pictures of their kids or checking in about the projects they were working on or, um, you know, talking about last night's soccer game or whatever. Right. Doing all of that office chat through their keyboards instead of speaking. Um, and once I figured that out, 
I, you know, that office opened up to me in a certain way. Um, and I was able to access that kind of chat, which was also really important to the fieldwork, to understanding the dynamics of the office itself. Um, but then, you know, the, the flip side of working with institutions and doing so much fieldwork in institutional spaces and offices um, was that eventually that became you know, sort of complemented with these informal spaces, right, where everybody from the office goes out to a bar after work. Um, or, you know, people kind of chopping it up in the car ride out to a field visit or something, right, talking through some kind of conservation problem. And those informal spaces were some of the richest for understanding what was actually happening in the formal spaces of those institutions as well. That, that is absolutely fascinating. So one of the questions that I had is, or one of the challenges for people who practice SDS or are SDS scholars is that we have to not only be fluent in our own academic languages, to call it, but also in that of our interlocutors. How was that learning experience in terms of how you entered the world of conservation or not only of conservation but the science of conservation yeah um that's a great question i actually started out my early academic career thinking that i was going to be on the scientific side um, of conservation you know i had long been interested in tropical landscapes and my undergraduate degree is in biology i entered that master's degree um in environmental science, thinking that I was, you know, with a, an ecologist for an advisor and thinking that I was going to be doing that science side of things. And my curiosity shifted during that degree towards thinking about the anthropology of science um, and of conservation science. So I had, I had some grounding, particularly in tropical forest ecology, kind of understanding ecological and biological sides of that knowledge making. Um, so I, I had a pretty good education and grounding in that. The part that was less familiar to me and that was sometimes challenging was in Semek in particular, um, they were really focused on mapping, right? A lot of remote monitoring, satellite imagery, aerial photography, and then GIS mapping. And I had taken one GIS course um, to try to prepare for that. But there really were limits to what I was, um, what I was able to do in that space or understand in that space. Um, you know, there there are certain mapping projects that were more straightforward um, that I could help with, and I and I did sometimes contribute to the lab in certain, you know, as a little bit of labor exchange for letting me mm -hmm. hang around and watch them all the time. Um, you know, so I came up with a little cartographic standards guide because each technician would kind of make maps according to their own, you know, sense of color schemes and whatever. And then you'd get all these different maps that look different. So the director said, you know, can you come up with a little bit of a guide for us and, you know, write something up so that we can have more standardized looking maps. You know, so I did, I was able to do something like that, but then there was another request 
if I could help um, figure out how to use this particular kind of data that I guess, I think it was the USGS had just made available um, and process it. And I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, it was beyond my technical skills. So, so that question of sort of, as an STS scholar, understanding the sciences themselves, yeah, I, I, there were some that I was really comfortable with and some where I, I did butt up against the edges of my own knowledge. Wow. So ethnographers of conservation practices often immerse themselves in local communities and explore their perspectives as they write their works. But as you just explained, you opted for a different vantage point here, that of the conservation organizations. So what appears differently from this angle? That's a great question. And, you know, as you sort of pointed to, most ethnographies of conservation tend to be located with communities and and as such are often really critical of conservation organizations. Um, and in particular, both in Guatemala and elsewhere around the world, there's a lot of critiques about sort of the neoliberalism of NGO-driven conservation in particular, about these different kinds of conservation models that prioritize economic logics, um, that shift responsibility from the state onto NGOs, and then also critiques about militarization of conservation, which are um, really important in the Maya Biosphere Reserve because that narco-trafficking and criminal presence has led to quite a bit of military alignment um, with conservation. And conservation organizations exist in this uneasy kind of space of aligning with the Guatemalan military, which of course has this genocidal history um, that has not really been accounted for, right? And so those critiques are, are really powerful and important and real. Um, but what, you, what I could see differently by being inside the conservation organizations is the ways that conservationists themselves are really struggling through these questions. Right. So what appears like this coherent kind of hegemonic conservation knowledge at a policy level or at this sort of landscape level, once you get down inside the organizations, inside the everyday practices, people are really trying to make sense of those contradictions. Right. Mm -hmm. People are in NGOs are actively struggling with, you know, what is our role versus the state and how do we manage that responsibly? Um, you know, explicitly talking about that or explicitly talking about, you know, I hate the military. I'm terrified of the military, but I don't know what else to do if we're getting kidnapped and murdered, you know, for doing conservation work, right? Or if our community allies are getting kidnapped and murdered um, for doing conservation work. So there's this, you know, getting down into the organizations, you can see some of the patchiness of those knowledges and how complicated they really are and how varied people's politics and ideas are um, inside these organizations. And in a certain way, I think opening up that complexity and looking at that complexity both shows something about how those really problematic practices and decisions get made and get reinforced. Um, 
And so in a certain way, they align, you know, some of my work aligns with those critiques, you know, I'm showing how these really um, problematic, you know, I, I don't agree with militarization of the reserve, but I understand why people feel so terrified that they think it's necessary, right? And then it also, you know, looking at that complexity points to these moments or these opportunities where something different might happen, right? Um, Or even points to moments where something different is happening, right? And, you know, while all the critiques are being directed in one direction, the same organization might actually be doing something very, very different in a different place in the reserve um, and maybe paying attention to that different kind of, you know, this long-term community engagement that's being built in one site, you know, even as militarization happens in another site. Um, You know, I think that paying attention to what we want to grow out of these conservation practices, what we want to encourage and foster is just as important as critiquing. And so I think being inside the organizations um, allows some of that complexity to appear and, and create some of that possibility for not just critiquing, but understanding how might this shift. So more than an ethnography on ecological knowledge, what the book offers is an ecology of knowledges. And one of the central concepts that the book is offering is that of the no-escape. Could you please elaborate on the conceptual approach that the book is proposing? Yeah. Um, So one of the things, one of the, you know, um, I'm going to start again. I'm really excited to talk about this concept. Um, One of the Mm -hmm. things that I wrote really early in the book, right, that drives so much conservation action in the reserve and I think around the world, right, is this desire to know the place in order to change it. Um, And some of that comes out of the complexity of the landscape, right? You want to know what the problems are, what the dynamics are in order to shift them. So I sort of take this this central driving desire of conservationists to think about how knowing and intervening on the landscape are always tied together. Um, and to think about how these things are tied together, but also really materially embedded in the landscape itself. So I think about knowledge not as this abstract, immaterial product of human brains, right? But something that's really emerges from concrete interactions between, you know, species on the landscape, technologies that. Um, you know, track or monitor things, you know, humans that then arrange that data into new kinds of configurations, which then shape the direction of what happens on the landscape, right? So you have this really cyclical process in which knowledge and intervention are always tied together um, and embedded really materially in the landscape. And so when I was thinking about how to describe this um, and doing research on other kinds of thinking about minds and knowledge and thought and, and ecological worlds, I came across this early 20th century idea of the noosphere. Um, and it was conceptualized actually around the same time as the biosphere, which you know is now a very widely known concept. 
right, of these sort of whole Earth's living systems. And the noosphere mm. was this, the mind of the biosphere, right, really conceptualized as the, the thinking layer of the living Earth. Um, and the early concept centered humans and kind of human exceptionalism and human knowledge as this new emergent direction for, for global evolution, right? But some later versions and reworkings of the concept, particularly uh, by Lynn Margulis and her son Dorian Sagan, were much less sort of coherent and less anthropocentric um, and less coherent in a good way. Right, the way that I think our own minds are less coherent and rational than you know perhaps some people have thought, um, and sort of, but just this concept of the noosphere, thinking about the the thinking layer of the earth, and I I loved that idea, and I loved the way that it embeds knowledge in these really complex material ecological processes. But the noosphere is this, much like the biosphere, a very global, holistic concept, right? And so it didn't quite work for thinking about a particular landscape. Um, so I bridged this, this noosphere concept with the suffix scape, right? Which, much like a landscape, um, is very partial. It's based on, you know, a particular situated perspective on the world. Um, and I brought in, you know, anthropological theory about relational thinking and partial connections to sort of break away from this model of um, everything being kind of parts and holes and these very clearly nested levels of hierarchy, you know, which, which are present in ecological thinking, you know, from species to population, um, to ecosystem, to biosphere, right? These sort of nested layers of, of holistic thinking. Um, I used this kind of thinking about partial connections to break away from that and think about how differently situated perspectives and knowledges and worlds are partially connected to each other. They're not completely distinct. They're not nested one inside the other. You know, science isn't bounded over here and indigenous knowledge bounded over there and, you know, scarlet macaws, bird knowledge bounded over here, but they all come into existence through their relations to the other kinds of knowledges and worlds. Um, so this idea of the noscape, right, describes these sort of partially connected, very situated kinds of knowledges that are always connected to change and intervention on the landscape. Um, and it's, so it's this, it's a complicated sort of theoretical framework for really trying to resist any kind of totalizing narrative, right? The landscape is not just one thing. Conservation is not just one thing. The state, as you mentioned, is not just one thing. Right, but all of these sort of patchy and partial enactments of ecological worlds that then come together in different kinds of relations and produce different kinds of effects and changes in the world. As you were studying knowledge making in practice, you must have also encountered walls and many walls of silence that haunt contemporary Guatemala. So, how does conservation knowledge? 
making practices relate to wartime memories, narcos, or political corruption in the country. I mean, the things that cannot be spoken about openly. So that's a great question. Um, and that's a major theme that runs throughout much of the book. Um, you know, starting with these memories of the Civil War. Um, and for those unfamiliar with Guatemalan history, the Civil War was from 1960 to 1996. So 36 years um, during which there was a genocidal campaign by the Guatemalan state, um, largely against Guatemala's indigenous population, but was also a war that conscripted the civilian population in, in ways that turned people against their own families, against their own communities, that really undermined um, a lot of relationships and a lot of trust in who people were, right? And, and this was a tactic of the war, was to undermine any kind of sense of who was on which side um, in order to stoke fear and, um, and control the population in a certain way. And so this, this lingering effect of not knowing, you know, who's acting on the part of the state or who's hiding something, right? Who's hiding a revolutionary alignment? Um, who's hiding the fact that they're collaborating with the state has sort of translated that, that broad epistemic uncertainty has translated now into not knowing who's connected to these very powerful criminal networks um, that are, you know, in the Petén, largely um, these transnational drug trafficking gangs, um, but there's other criminal networks as well. Um, and they have connections in the state and they have, um, so there's quite a bit of corruption in that level. And then it's just this uncertainty when you encounter somebody on the landscape of, of whether or not, you know, they're a safe person, right? Whether or not they have criminal connections, whether or not they're trustworthy enough that you can reveal something about your own alignments or political alliances, right? So there's this kind of, I describe it as a double vision, right? Where there's what is seen and what is knowable, and this constant paranoid attention to what is not being said, right? Um, and I talk about how this, this sort of paranoid epistemology is really kind of exists in a symbiotic relationship with science, right? Where science is giving you what is measurable, what is visible, you know, what is accessible to our technologically extended senses, right? Um, but there's always limits, you know, that won't tell you who's been paid off, right? That won't tell you who's going to leak your information, right? Um, and so this sort of visible, techno-scientific, rational side is really entangled with this constant hunting for what is not being said. Um, and and that's fed by the, you know, the sort of parallel knowledge structures of rumors and um, these sort of 
ways that some knowledges move through documents and some knowledges move through conversations between trusted contacts, right? But then you use that knowledge, that paranoid knowledge, to actually read the scientific documents properly, right? Um, so one example that is really quite clear, I think, in the book is when there's this map of reported environmental crimes. And there's, you know, Laguna del Tigre Park, which I mentioned before, um, on this map showed actually very few crimes reported. But there was a meeting I was in, you know, one of these closed door meetings with people who were all known to each other and quite trusted. And when they were reading the map and trying to make sense of it, they actually read that lack of crimes as evidence of more crimes, right? So this, this understanding that they had that this park was the location where most drug trafficking happens, where the most land grabs happen, where the most fires happen every year, um, where there's the most settlements, you know, both illegal and these kind of semi-legal settlements. Right, all of these sort of informal knowledges and rumors about what happens in this park led this group of people to read that absence not as an actual absence of crime, but as an indication that the criminal presences were so powerful there that the crimes weren't even getting reported. Right, so the way that the paranoia and the sort of techno scientific um, knowledges work together to shape this understanding of what's happening on the landscape is a, is a major theme in the book. Um, and, and thinking about how all of these conservation decision made, um, decisions are made with this kind of double vision, right, of what is seeable and what is unseeable and how do you account for or try to protect yourself against the, um, the unpredictability of those unseen, often very violent forces um, that are present in the reserve. In the book, we follow scientists translating knowledge, reconciling the visible and the invisible, as you were just saying, what can be said and what cannot be uttered. They're balancing what's possible and doable for conservation in a complex and definitely complicated context. For our listeners who might not have yet read the book, could you please share some of these moments of translation and how they're how they affect or contribute to conservation practice? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll give you two examples. Um, so that that sort of point in different directions about how these translation moments actually shape conservation practice. So the first is thinking about measuring population in the reserve. So I have a chapter that's devoted to thinking about this question of population, um, and it, which has been measured in a variety of ways over the years. So there's this 2001 census that was done through the reserve that was, you know, considered this huge success. It gathered an enormous amount of data, not just about sort of basic demographic data inside the reserve, but, um, You know, things like access to education, access to health infrastructure, um, you know, languages spoken, whether people were born 
you know, in the Beten in other parts of Guatemala, right, where they migrating from other places, it was capturing this really complex plurality of people in the reserve, um, but was very difficult to do for many reasons, um, including community distrust of the state that was carrying out the census. So it has been rather than sort of updating or repeating that census, even, you know, at 10 or 20 year intervals, um, the state has taken to doing this annual aerial monitoring of population in which they count rooftops in the reserve um, and then multiply the number of rooftops by 5.5, which was the average number of people per family found in that census, and use that to estimate the population in different locations, as well as to track, you know, which places are growing or shrinking sort of more rapidly, right? Um, Which is a very useful kind of quick and dirty way of estimating population, but it totally flattens all of that complex humanity inside the reserve and turns all people into rooftops. Um, so I talk about these two different ways of measuring population and they get used in different kinds of contexts. But then when conservationists are actually inside villages, right, and they're being asked to use these annual aerial counts to think about their work with communities, right, to shape their work with communities, if a community is growing really fast or not, that's going to shape the conservation strategy. Um, So I talk about how in these two different villages, other kinds of population emerge. In one that has really strong community NGO bonds, they actually did this imaginary census where they decided, you know, five point, this number with 5.5 people times our rooftops is way too high. We're going to just sit down and talk through this imagined walk through the village and use the collective knowledge of the people in this room to just be like, oh, you know, the Martinez family, you know, they've got X number of kids. And they actually went through and counted this imaginary census. And the NGO worker decided that this count was more reliable than this rooftop count, which was too high, and used this number to actually direct his understanding of population dynamics. In another place, in this um, indigenous community inside Laguna del Tigre that I mentioned earlier, the dynamic there was not to respond with a different number, right? They, they're often actually used as this example of growing population, um, but they had this kind of refusal to engage in questions about population whatsoever. And this is sort of comes from this, again, this, these civil war legacies of distrust and, and longer than that, honest, um, really longer legacies of distrust of the state by indigenous communities. Um, there's a lot of distrust in particular asking about children because of um, rumors about Oroaninos or people stealing indigenous children, right? This is a common sort of rumor throughout Guatemala. So people don't want to talk about how many kids they have. Um, So that refusal in a certain way shaped an inability to come up with an alternative population number in that village. And the conservation worker that I followed there ends up really being caught between her understanding of 
what a growing population looks like on the ground with these very official state numbers and not being able to respond in a different way, the way that the imaginary census allowed um, this other person to do. So it creates this kind of patchiness on the landscape where these aerial counts work really well at the science policy interface, but it doesn't work at the practice level, right? It doesn't work when people are actually trying to figure out what to do in particular villages. Um, And so you end up with these totally varied takes on what a population even is that affect how some villages end up getting more conservation support than others, um, just based on their ability to even respond in a different way to these kind of state counts. So that's one example of these sort of moments of translation and and patchiness. Um, And another one I wanted to talk about briefly was a very different kind of translation, which is translating those embodied wildlife encounters that I talked about earlier into sort of, you know, quote unquote, rational Mm -hmm. um, techno-scientific knowledge, right? Because those encounters are so filled with embodied affect and love and wonder. Um, But those aren't allowed into scientific discourse, Um, you know, and you're, you're not supposed to feel love for the birds or you are, but you're, you know, not supposed to let that shape your data. Um, and so I, you know, describe a couple of different moments in, in which the sort of those embodied encounters get carved away from what is considered useful knowledge or sort of technical or um, scientific knowledge that can be extracted from those encounters in a certain way and cuts out all of that affect Mm. um, that people who work in the field really have. But at the same time, that affect, I think, is what keeps conservation going, right? Or is what, you know, keeps people um, engaged in trying to protect the forest and protect these incredible spaces and species. Um, And so I think about the ways that carving that love out of science, you know, can really, might really be a detriment to thinking about um, how to practice conservation, not just because sometimes it carves away knowledges that might actually be useful, um, but also because that's, that's what's keeping people engaged, right? That's what um, keeps the whole project and the whole reserve going in a certain way in the face of all of these problems. Hmm. So my last question has to do with conservation and its future. What has happened to the reserve since you finished your studies? And what is the immediate future for conservation in Guatemala? You know, in at the end of my book, I write something along the lines of, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, or I describe conservation using Lewis Carroll's Red Queen metaphor, where, you know, you have to run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place, right? So there's this very reactive dynamic. And I think that that is sort of describes what has happened since the book. You know, there's the specifics have shifted, but a lot of the same dynamics remain the same. Um, You know, so I know that 
as climate change continues to impact the region, it's getting hotter and drier and the fire seasons are getting worse. Um, And I know this year was particularly difficult because of the pandemic that really um, affected the ability to sort of organize and mobilize firefighting uh, in these really remote areas, right? Um, And so I think that's added a new layer of complexity. Um, I also write in the book about these sort of ongoing struggles over the Mirador region, right? Um, In particular, some proposals to turn it into a kind of luxury tourism site. Um, And again, that has recurred just this year. There was a proposal in U.S. Congress to put $150 million over 10 years towards development of this site, um, which... Um, just as happened, you know, in 2011, there was this, you know, very similar proposal and this huge community outcry and pushback um, against because these proposals typically take away a lot of community land rights in the reserve um, in the in the name of economic development. Um, and so, you know, it's there's new proposals, but it's the same old story. Right. Um But I think, you know, in particular, the fact that that was coming through U.S. Congress points to the general role of, you know, U.S. imperialism in shaping Guatemalan trajectories, you know, um, historically and in the present. Right. I think this U.S. election will have um, major effects on the Maya Biosphere Reserve in ways that are somewhat unpredictable. Um, And as well as, you know, Guatemalan elections, which similarly can have drastic shifts um, in conservation policy. Um, But the one thing that I'm really kind of keeping an eye on that might actually be a larger change or something to watch in the next few years is that these community forest concessions um, were granted 25-year contracts that, um, you know, the earliest ones were granted in the mid-1990s. So we're just approaching in the next few years the first um, potential renewals of these contracts. So this is actually a really, really key moment in the reserve because um, those community concessions, you know, while they're not perfect, have been more successful in maintaining forest cover than, you know, the sort of human exclusive national park models in the reserve. Um, And they also, you know, have more community support, more community benefits, um, and are in a certain way, you know, while again, not perfect, perhaps more equitable than park model conservation. So I've been noticing there's, you know, increasing kind of publication and sort of scientific support for the conservation success of those community conservations, I think trying to um, help them actually get renewals of those contracts and continue to be able to work the land um, and protect the forest through sustainable forestry. But again, you know, you're up against some pretty powerful economic interests that might want to shift the reserve in a new direction. So I think that this this renewal period for these concessions is the next major battle for the reserve that will be coming up in the next few years, which I will be very interested to see how that unfolds. Well, thank you again, Micah, for joining me today. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we talked to Micah Rader. 
about her book, An Ecology of Knowledge, Fear, Love, and Technoscience in Guatemalan Forest Conservation, published by Duke University Press in 2020. This is your host, Alejandro Ponce de Leon, and stay tuned for a next episode of New Books in Environmental Studies.